Well, here we are on the backside of Thanksgiving and on this first day of Advent. I think it's appropriate that we fix our attention on the part of Luke's gospel. You'll know if you've been here recently that we're working our way through the gospel of Luke together. We've just begun uh, and it's appropriate this morning that we're fixing our uh, attention on the part of Luke's gospel that outlines for us the coming of our king. You see, as followers of Jesus, Jesus himself should be the gravitational center of our lives. And so as we enter this Christmas season, this should be a time for us, a unique time for us to consider afresh the joy and the wonder of Christ's miraculous arrival. For us, his coming must remain central at Christmas time. And yet, perhaps Christmas for you also carries a number of other lesser holiday associations. Not all of them are bad. Perhaps some of you are thinking and, and, and getting excited about looking forward to decorating the tree or making Christmas cookies. Some of you who are like A-plus students are, are even looking forward to like building gingerbread houses. I've seen some of these things. You guys need an architecture degree for that. Or, or you're looking forward to the colorful lights and the tinsel and all of the trappings uh, that culturally, uh, that, that we celebrate at Christmas time. Well, I have a confession. As a former history teacher, the beginning of the Christmas season always gets me thinking about Thomas Jefferson. No? Doesn't do it for you? Okay. All right. Well, some of you have heard me share this before, and others of you are thinking, oh, okay, Zeb, I, I get that Thomas Jefferson was a big deal. He was a respected founding father of our nation. He goes on to become the third president. But what in the world are you thinking? What does Thomas Jefferson have to do with Christmas? Well, sadly, the glorious truth of Jesus' incarnation was regarded by Mr. Jefferson as little more than a sentimental Christmas fable. A silly myth that we would do well to move past. In fact, here are Thomas Jefferson's actual words. We've got them up on the screen for you about the biblical truths that we're about to read here in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. Now, before we read from Jefferson, you should note he was really smart. And he lived a long time ago. So, so if this reading is a little clunky for you, see, just see if you can get the big idea. Jefferson writes this about the advent of Christ and this passage in Luke 1. The day will come, Jefferson opines, when the mystical generation of Jesus by the supreme being as his father in the womb of a virgin will be classed with the fable of the generation of Minerva, that's a Roman goddess, in the brain of Jupiter. Translation. This is nothing more than a myth. One day, Jefferson thinks, people are going to put this story about the virgin birth of Christ in the same category as all those Greek and Roman fables. Well, with all due respect to Mr. Jefferson... His rule is long since over, and the Jesus whose birth he scoffed at is still on the throne. I wasn't looking to twist a knife there or anything. Just, I'm just saying he was wrong. 
our prayer, or one of our many prayers this Christmas season as leaders, as uh, elders and pastors here at Friendship Community Church, is that if you're here among us, and perhaps like Jefferson, you're not exactly sure that you buy this whole Christmas deal, this virgin's conception of a God-man who 2,000 years ago did some stuff that ends up saving our eternal souls. If you're here in that category and you're not so sure that you buy it, we want to thank you for coming. You're welcome here. And our sincere prayer is that this Christmas season, through the reading of the Word and through God's grace, your eyes would be opened to know, to behold the truths that define us. That Jesus Christ is God. That he died for our sins. That he's risen again. That he's seated right now at the throne of God. And that he is coming again. Our prayer is that you would believe and celebrate. This is more than a fable. This is more than just Christmas tradition. This is truth. And... For those of us here, and I know there are many, who do believe this, it's possible, just possible, that you struggle with this Christmas story in a slightly different way. It's possible that the familiarity of the Christmas narrative makes it easy to receive these truths with little more than a casual shrug. One of my absolute favorite biblical scholars, Dale Ralph Davis, puts it this way. Writing about this passage we're about to read, Jesus' birth in Luke 1, he writes, Familiarity tends to deaden appreciation. Believe that? You could apply that to lots of areas of life. The more familiar you are with something, the more you hear it, the more you're exposed to it, the, the, the less appreciative you become. And, and for some of us here, we've been around the calendar a cycle or two you've heard this a few times before and if we're not careful we can become deadened davis says perhaps a bit numb to the wonder of what we're here to celebrate so our prayer for you then dear christian is that you would hear about the miracle of christ's birth with a renewed sense of appreciation and and, and wonder so let's let's dive in let me invite you to turn in your bibles to luke chapter one if you're not already there luke chapter one we're going to read the entire passage before us beginning in verse 26 luke chapter one verse 26 and ending in verse 28 or 38 excuse me luke one 26 to 38. Dr. Luke writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. 
And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy. The Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Well, Our passage begins with the angel Gabriel making a surprise appearance to an obscure village called Nazareth in the region of Galilee. Now remember, our author, Dr. Luke, just gave us Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, like only one of three, ultimately, depending on how you class them, or one of two angels in all of Scripture who we know their name. You just gave us Gabriel's resume just a few verses before. We, we covered this last week when he appeared to John the Baptist's parents. It's worth noting. Look back at verse 19. Gabriel says to Zechariah, John the Baptist's soon-to-be father, I stand in the presence of God. Huh. That's a pretty big deal. Right? It. Gabriel, the angel, stands in the presence of God and is sent. He said, I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. So Gabriel, as wonderful as he is, as powerful as he is, as big of a deal as he is, is not here on his own authority. He's carrying a message straight from the throne room of God. And what's he proclaimed to Mary? He repeats it two times, actually, in this passage. Look at verse 28. Greetings, oh, what's that word? Favored one. Yeah, he says it again in a different form. Same word in verse 30. You have found favor with God. Gabriel comes straight from God's presence to proclaim to this virgin, this Mary, favor. That's a big word that the root word for that English word favor is the word charis, which can also be translated grace. So in other words, the angel is saying something like greetings, Mary. God has shown great grace to you. He's bestowed great favor upon you. And I think it's worth making a quick note here, because here in southwestern Pennsylvania, We live in the midst of a region with a very strong Roman Catholic presence. We should note in this passage that Mary is described as a recipient of God's grace, not as a giver or a mediator of God's grace. You're not going to find that doctrine here in Luke 1, nor anywhere else in Scripture for that matter. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 1 Timothy 2 and says, there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Mary's a big deal. 
She's given great favor, but it's favor that she hasn't earned. She's received from God. And she doesn't become like some special mediator of anything. We don't pray to her. We don't use her as a go-between to get to God. Mary's a tool. Mary's an image bearer. We're so very grateful for her life, for her legacy of faith. But Mary's not in a deified category. She's not a mediator or a giver of grace. That's God's job. All right, back to the passage. Not surprisingly, Mary is not exactly sure what to make of all this. And Gabriel bottom lines it for her in his description. Look at verse 31 with me. He says to Mary, you're going to conceive, which admittedly creates some questions for the Virgin Mary. And you're going to call this baby's name Jesus. So it would be an appropriate time this morning for me to say to you, Merry Christmas, Jesus. See, he's going to be born, and, and this baby's name is going to be Jesus. Now, this is critical for us to see, so lean in here th and think about this. The coming of this child, the timing of this child, and the name of this child are not up to Mary. You see that? The coming of the child. Wasn't up to her. She's going about her business. Some resplendent heavenly being stands before her, scares the daylights out of her. The, the coming of the child, the timing of the child, the name of the child was ordained. It was appointed in heaven. This isn't Mary's doing. It's not up to her. Let's just take the name and drill down that uh, on that a bit. The name of this baby is such a big deal that... Gabriel not only gives it to Mary, but when he shows up to her husband-to-be Joseph in a later account, you can read about that in Matthew 1, he says the same thing. He says to Joseph in Matthew 1.21, if you want to check me, Mary's going to bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. There's no leaving the name of this child up to chance. You, they don't get the right to call him Joseph Jr. or JJ or, or anything like that. God has very specifically decided on what this child shall be called. And he says his name is Jesus, which actually was a very common name at that time. Jesus is a Greek name, a Greek word, which was a way of translating the, the Hebrew, the old Jewish name, Joshua. It's the same name. Joshua is the Hebrew version of it. Jesus, or Iesus, is the Greek version of it. So, same name. Joshua, Jesus. And it means, you ready? It means Yahweh saves. Yahweh, the proper name of God, Yahweh saves. And isn't this uniquely appropriate, friends, for Yahweh saves to be the name of the Savior of the world? God didn't leave that up to chance. He made sure he told mom and dad his name is Yahweh saves. That's what he's coming to do. 
these next two verses, if you look with me in verse 32 and following, are just dripping with significance. If you want to go with me down this cheesy trail, you can even say they're pregnant with significance. Look at verse 32 with me. He will, Gabriel's speaking about this baby to come. He says, he will be great and will be called son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, put your finger with me on that word in verse 32. Great. If you highlight, if you take notes, if you drill down deep and you want to remember this later, circle that word, word, notate that word great. That's the Greek word mega. He will be mega, Gabriel says. This child's going to be a very big deal. And, and Gabriel's about to tell us just how mega this baby to come is going to be. He says next, he'll be called the son of the most high. Huh. Talk about royalty. This child is divine. This is the son of the most high God. Now, the name that Gabriel uses here for God, the, the Most High, is just a Greek translation of a very common Old Testament name. We see it all over the place in the Psalms and, and in Genesis. It's the name El Elyon, God Most High. And there is no way that Mary would have missed the significance of this statement. This baby, God's son. Son of the Most High God, El Elyon. Because in ancient Hebrew culture, all of the rights, all of the privileges of the Father were extended to the Son. Everyone then would have understood that Son of the Most High, Son of Yahweh, meant that this child was equal with Yahweh. Now, I don't know about you. I probably would have just mailed it in there. But Gabriel keeps going. He, he says then something else about this soon coming king. Look at the very end of verse 32 with me. He says that this child is going to reign on the throne of his father, David. Now, some of you who are more perceptive might be saying something like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought you just told us, Gabriel, that he was the son of the Most High. Now you're telling us that David's his father. Which one is it? God's son, David's son. Yes. Exactly. This child will be fully God. God made flesh. And he will also be truly man, fully man, which is also just what God had promised of old through the mouths of his servants, the prophets. This coming king would be physically descended from King David's line. See, God had made David a promise a thousand years beforehand. And the promise was pretty big actually but a, a key part of that promise you can read about it in second samuel 7 was that an offspring would come from david's line and the throne of that offspring would be established forever now I, i'm a history geek i don't know how like brushed up y'all are on history but what 
kingdom can you tell me about? What throne can you tell me about has been established forever? Never broken. Goose egg. This descendant, this Davidic descendant is like in a whole different echelon, a whole different category. He's going to have a forever throne. This is the Messiah promised to David's line. Let me give you just a taste here. I think it's up on the screen. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13. God says to David at the end of his life, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He's going to have a kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. How long? Forever. Here's the point. This baby, this baby promised to a peasant girl in backwoods Galilee is going to be the king. And not just any king, like capital T, the king, the king of kings. So God sends Gabriel from his presence to proclaim, here he is. Here's He's the promised one. This baby is coming and he's the one you've been waiting for. This child is the Davidic ruler who was prophesied. The one whose reign will never end. Which is precisely Gabriel's next point. If you look in verse 33, where the angel says not once but twice in this one verse, verse 33 alone, that the reign of this soon coming king would be eternal. He says he'll reign over Jacob, over God's people forever. He says later, of his kingdom, there will be no end. So, as we've already been singing this morning, he shall reign forevermore. We can also reach back into history and gladly, truly sing with Handel's Messiah. He shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Please don't miss this. Mary would have clearly understood that the angel was calling this child the long-awaited Messiah. The eternal Son of God. The promised King who would reign over God's people forever. That's what the angel has told her. Now, I'm not saying that Mary understood all the ramifications of this. She's probably like drooling a bit in shock. But I bet Mary is feeling just a little bit in this moment like she had outkicked her coverage. After all, let's not lose sight of the fact that this was amazing news. It really was incredible news. And yet it was also cloaked in some very real and practical difficulties for her. Not the least of which is a major biological problem. It is a physical impossibility for a virgin to have a baby and a pretty major social problem as well. Think of the reproach which would follow her all the days of her life. No, guys, I can explain. It was God. Sure, Mary. We know how babies happen. The 
the ridicule, the social ostracization. Uh, how do you say that? Ostracization. You can, you can correct me later. She would carry this shame for the rest of her days. So what's her response? Well, her first response, verse 34, is a question. How will this be? How can a virgin have a baby? I mean, everyone in Galilee, scratch that, everyone in like ever knows how babies happen and they don't happen for virgins. But this marks, if you're counting, the third time in our text that God tells Mary, or God tells us, that Mary is a virgin. And count them up. Literally, I love her statement in, in verse 34. Her line is, since I do not know a man. Now, it's not like Mary had never met someone from the male persuasion before, right? I mean, she's engaged to one, right? So the knowing is more than an acquaintance type of knowing. This is a deeper kind of knowing. It's a sense of intimate knowing. She's describing here sexual union. Since I don't know a man, I've never engaged in sexual intercourse before. I am a virgin. If you want to geek out, you can. I'm not going to waste our time now. There's a lot of writing out there by theologians who are too big for their britches who try to say... That, that word virgin just means young maiden. Doesn't necessarily mean that Mary was a virgin. That's garbage. What you say here? I don't know a man. I've never been with a man intimately. She was a virgin. And God wants us to get this. He doesn't waste his breath. He says it not once, not twice, but three times that she's a virgin. Almost like the Lord's like, hey, virgin. Hey, by the way, did I tell you that Mary was a virgin? Hey, y'all, just in case you missed it, Mary's a virgin. I mean, three times. It's not that Mary doubts that God would or could do what he said. Her question in verse 34 is just her struggling to understand how in the world this is going to go down. Gabriel gives her the answer. And the answer is the Holy Spirit. By the way, it's often the answer to our needs here in the New Covenant. God's very presence, God's Spirit doing for us what we can never do on our own. He is, after all, very good at being God. Luke 1.35, the angel answered her question. The Holy Spirit, that's the answer. He will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This child will be human. Mary really had him. He's really flesh and blood. He's not some kind of spiritual hologram. He's fully man. But also, he's God. He's God's son, born of God, born of the spirit. And notice, this is beautiful. Notice that there is a very clear Trinitarian connection in these verses. Did you catch this? All three persons of the triune Godhead are present here. We're talking about the birth of Jesus, the son. Whose son is he? Well, he's the son of God 
the Father, Son of Yahweh, God Most High. There's two persons of the Trinity. And how's all this going to happen? Well, through God the Spirit. You see it there? The Trinity all at work in this miraculous incarnation work. Verse 35, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. I love that word power. It's the Greek word dunamis where we get our English word dynamite from. The dynamite of the Holy Spirit will come upon you. We clearly see that this is the Holy Spirit's power. And I'd like you to remember, this is, this is more than just coincidence, that the Holy Spirit is the same Spirit who hovered over the formless world in Genesis 1 before God spoke creation into being. The same Spirit who made nothing into something. And now, that Holy Spirit is going to hover over, is going to overshadow Mary with His omnipotent, limitless power. And He is going to, once again, bring forth something out of nothing. Pretty cool. Now, Let's connect the dots. Let's make sure we're understanding this rightly. Right after saying that the Holy Spirit is the one who's going to do this, Gabriel says, therefore, connected to what I've just told you, the Holy Spirit's going to do this, therefore, because this child is going to be conceived by the Holy Spirit, this child will be called holy. Huh. Well, that makes sense. Born of the Holy Spirit, this child will be called holy. In other words, there is none like him. He is the only one ever to be born this way. It's a really big deal. Christmas is a really big deal. No one's ever been born like this. He's holy. He's set apart. This child is distinct in a class of his own. He's pure. He's undefiled from any original sin. Adam's sin is not attached to this baby boy. There is none higher. There is none greater. This child, born of the Holy Spirit, will be called holy. And finally, we get to the climactic statement in verse 37. Gabriel says, for nothing will be impossible with God. Now, I, I really had to resist the urge when I was uh, researching for this message to go off on a big tangent uh, because this is the same statement that an angelic messenger gives to Sarah, who was also unable to have a baby in her present circumstance, when God was going to do a miraculous birthing work through her. Nothing is impossible. You can go chase that one if you want. Back to Mary. Nothing's impossible with God. Verse 37. Now, please, I know that we can just go on autopilot. We've heard this dozens of times, some of us. Don't let this commonplace language steal the power of what God is communicating here. Do you believe this? There's nothing that God can't do. There is nothing so broken that God cannot fix. There is no circumstance so crooked that He cannot straighten. He is God Most High. And yet, 
that brings up a natural objection, and we feel it here too in 2022, this objection, that if all things are possible with God, if He's really omnipotent, if He's all-powerful, if He's really God, and if He's good, then why this problem? Then why the carnage I see on the news? If nothing's impossible with God, then why is my life a train wreck? Then why is my cancer still here? Then why is my fill-in-your-narrative? And this is heartbreaking stuff. I don't want in any way to minimize the pain that some of us are navigating through. Answer. The Bible does give us an answer. Well, God's not only all-powerful, He's also sovereign, which means He knows best, among other things. Think of it this way. It's been said before, all analogies are flawed. All analogies break down at some point, but some of them are useful. You decide whether this one's useful or not. How many of you have ever before been through a grocery store with children? This should give you a medal. I've got a child or two. Um, and uh, we, we, we run this play semi-regularly where you're walking through the store, the grocery, uh, wait, the aisle of the grocery store, I got it, um, and, and you get this constant refrain in your ears, can we have this, 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 no matter how many times you've like prior prepped them in the car, we're not buying anything you like, <laughs> I mean, loosely paraphrased. One time I got this question, why not? Can't you afford it? Sometimes the answer is no. Uh, I didn't tell him that. In, in that case, I could afford it, but here was, here's the point. Just because I can doesn't mean I should. You putting it together? After all, it's not always in my plan to get the Mondo Economy Pack thousand package of gusher fruit snacks every time I'm in Sam's Club. Although my family would like me to get that. Gushers. Remember those? I'm like a child of the 80s. That gets me excited. What's the point? Just because he can doesn't mean he should doesn't mean that it's best. Doesn't mean that it's in keeping with his plan. By the way, God hasn't just planned out tomorrow. He's already there. He's in it. He is above time. He's worked this thing out. He is the sovereign potentate of time. As the hymn writer so accurately described. Nothing is impossible with God. And yet, as his people, our right response to his power and his sovereignty is to humbly step back and say, Lord, you've told me some things. You've given me some things. It's more than I deserve. And I don't know. I don't understand it all. But I'm going to do what you said. And look at Mary's response. 
What a beautiful expression of faith in verse 38. Luke 1, 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant. Note that word, servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary's response to this unexpected news, which, by the way, would radically alter her own life's plans, was submission. But, but what about her dreams? What, what about the reproach that she would carry for having a baby and not being married, particularly in this Jewish culture? It wasn't common practice, but the Jewish law said you could be stoned to death for that. The stigma that would be with her for the rest of her life. If you read the Gospels, we're, we're about to read in later in Jesus' life, people slinging insults about him and his illegitimate birth. We'll get to some of those. This was, this was a black label placed on Mary's life. Unfair but one that she would be forced to carry throughout all her days. You know, literally, her phrase, her, her, her statement, literally, I am the Lord's servant. That word, servant, we've cleaned up a bit in the English. Most literally translated, the word is slave. It's the Greek word doulos. And man, is that a thick word. Tyler knows all about it, don't you, Tyler? Doulos. I am the Lord's bond slave. He owns me. What he says, I do. What a beautiful response. What an what a expression of total surrender. Mary says, I am the doulos, the slave of God. It's as if she's saying, Lord, my life is in your hands. Whatever you choose, wherever you lead, I will follow. He's a good master. And he was good to Mary. He's a good shepherd to all his sheep. Now, that's the passage. Let's ask the simple application question as we prepare to close this morning. And we should be very clear as we're thinking about the, the miraculous conception of the Son of God and Mary's situation. We, we gotta be we gotta be careful to draw this line. Your situation, friend, is not Mary's situation. You are not Mary. We shouldn't put ourselves in the same category as her. And yet, doesn't scripture often prompt us to think from the greater to the lesser? So, what kind of submission, what kind of principle of submission would this look like for you in your life think about your trajectory and begin to ask the questions that i don't even i don't even know how to ask what's this mean for your your job what's this mean for your relationships what's this mean for the way that you parent or or children teenagers for the way that you navigate through school or your friendships your relationships your commitments can you say, will you say, like Mary, Lord, I choose you. Lord, your master, and I submit to your plan. For better or for worse, 
We make these commitments to, in marriage. How much more so to God? For better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness or in health, will you submit to Him? Whether your plan for me, God, is to be successful or perhaps wonderfully regular. Perhaps something more simple than successful. Whether your plan for me, God, is to walk through the valleys or to scale the mountain peaks. May we be people here at Friendship Community Church who submit to the Lord's plan for our lives and say like Mary, I am your humble servant, God. Whatever my life looks like, whatever course you've laid out for me to run, I will live it for you. And like the words to the old hymn, we would sing, take my life, God, and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my hands, God. Take my feet. Take my voice. Take my intellect. Take, take my silver and my gold. Take all I got, Lord. I'm, I'm submitting my whole self to your lordship. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. I can't think of a better way to close than to sing out that song as a prayer, as a commitment to our God. He's sovereign. He's good. He's God most high. And he sent his son to save you. The Messiah, the long-awaited Davidic king. Now let's submit to his lordship afresh this Christmas season. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're, we're overawed if we're seeing these truths rightly. We're overawed by your goodness. That you would at the right time, when, when the fullness of time in humanity had come, at just the right moment, you sent your son. Lord, we thank you for your grace in stooping down and condescending to us to show us your kindness. Lord, thank you for his holiness. Thank you for his perfection. Thank you that he was never marred by sin, that he lived a perfect life, that he accomplished our salvation on that rugged, terrible tree. And now we pray, Lord, that you would help us to model the faith that you've laid out for us in faithful saints like Mary, like so many of the great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us. Lord, may we in full surrender offer you our life, our hands, our feet, our voice, our all. We pray it afresh this Christmas season in Jesus' name.